Well, good afternoon, gentlemen. I am grateful that you are all here, and I feel the energy not to be, um, what's the word, a millennial or whatever the word is, but I feel the energy outside. It's incredible. And it's not only because there's so much coffee, it's because everybody's just happy to be here and just enjoying the fellowship and enjoying the word of God and the messages, and I'm with you guys 100%. And I do thank you for coming. My grandfather is here, (laughs) Marty Wolf. Um, Let me pray for us, and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can be here. We thank you for this conference, Lord. We thank you that we can have a time when we come together and we fellowship with one another with one mindset with one goal and focus, Lord, is to devote our lives to being your instruments, to devote our lives to studying your word, and Lord, to glorifying your name among other believers, Lord, and among non-believers preaching the gospel to them. Lord, so I do pray that this time would be a refreshing time, the entire week, but also the remainder of the day today. Lord, I do pray that you would bless this session right now that your name would be glorified, Lord. It's exciting the things that you have given to us in your word. Pray that we would never take them for granted. We would never make small of them, Lord, but we would enjoy them, relish, study them, and worship you for, for the things that you have given to us. Lord, so I do pray that you would make this request a reality during this session, that we would take your word, we would be excited for it, and we would glorify you. Pray this, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the theme of this conference is shepherding the remnant, and we're familiar with the term remnant, as Steve Lawson, Dr. Steve Lawson said this morning, that it's a term that suggests that some will perish, and others, those who remain, or the remnant, will be preserved. And when we look at the scriptures, we can see right away in the scriptures, God preserved Noah, and his family was one who remained, Genesis 7 says. God points to Isaiah's son, Shear Yeshuv, in Isaiah chapter 7, and the name means the remnant will return as a symbol that God will save a remnant from Israel. And this word remnant is actually primarily used in the context of Israel, the people of Israel. But more broadly, the, the term remnant, I should say more rarely also, God applies the word remnant to the Gentiles who will seek the Lord and who will worship the Lord. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 7, Zechariah prophesies about the Philistines who are the arch enemies of Israel. He prophesies that these Philistines will become a remnant for our God and they will become like a clan in Judah. And because of this, the fact that God includes the Gentiles into his plan of salvation, because of this, we can turn to Revelation 7 and see in verse 9 that a great multitude from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues is standing before the throne and before the Lamb and worshiping God. So this concept of the remnant refers to God saving a part of humanity. But this concept appears in the Bible even before the word remnant appears in the Bible. And this idea appears in the very beginning of human history in the first promise of redemption that God makes in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The word remnant does not appear there, but the idea of saving part of humanity, part of the people who are perishing, 
that does appear in that promise, and that is the whole point of that promise. In the Garden of Eden at the fall of man, with death now part of the human race, God divides humanity into the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman is the remnant of humanity that God redeems. So God's plan to save some reaches all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 at the very beginning of history. And that's where we see that concept play itself out at first. Now, in addition to these two kinds of seed, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, there is a third seed, the seed that comes from the woman, the seed who delivers the seed of the woman, and that seed is the seed we know as the Messiah. So as God reveals his plan of redemption in Genesis 3, he declares that there are three kinds of seed. The wicked seed, which is the seed of the serpent, the righteous seed, which is the seed of the woman that is delivered by God, and the perfect seed, which is the seed that is singled out from the seed of the woman, which is identified as he at the end of Genesis 3.15, and which seed we know as the Messiah. So you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and let's look at that passage together. Now, in Genesis 3, if Eve is deceived by the serpent, she and Adam sin against God, and then God pronounces the consequences against the serpent, against the serpent, against the man, and against the woman. And one of these consequences, and this is really the grace of God, but one of these consequences is God's plan of redemption, what we call as the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. In Genesis 3.15, God addresses the serpent, and this is what God says in that first plan of redemption, first promise of redemption. God speaks to the serpent and says, And I, God, will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So the first seed that God identifies here is the seed of the serpent, the wicked seed, the seed that is not part of the redeemed. God states that the serpent will have seed, and that the serpent's seed will be distinct from the seed of the woman. But not only will it be different from the seed of the woman, it will be pitted against the woman's seed. The serpent's seed and the woman's seed will have inherent, ongoing, and God-ordained enmity established at the very beginning that will not be removed, at least not in this world. Now, I'm certain that most of you or many of you have heard uh, or read secular scholars who say that this has nothing to do with spiritual enmity, but that it's referring to the enmity between humans and snakes. I'm sure that this is familiar to you. Klaus Westermann, one of the higher critical scholars who lived in the 20th century, he says this. The enmity referred to here in Genesis 3.15, the enmity will work itself out by humans and the serpent continually trying to kill each other. The person by crushing the head of the serpent, the serpent by biting the person on the foot from behind. There is no spiritual enmity here, he says. The problem with this explanation is that it completely ignores the fact that the entirety of chapter, of chapter 3 is about rebellion against God. 
the whole chapter is about the spiritual. Now, in contrast to Westermann, the understanding that this is spiritual enmity goes all the way back to ancient interpretations. Various Jewish texts as early as the time of Jesus, they understood this as referring to spiritual enmity between the seed that comes from Satan and the seed that comes from the woman. Targum Onkelos, which is an Aramaic translation of Genesis, but of all, the entire Torah, uh, but here specifically of Genesis 3, written around Jesus' time, translates Genesis 3.15 in the following way. I, God, will put enmity between you and the woman and between your sons and her sons. The translator translates the word seed, zera, as sons. The serpent's sons will be at enmity with the woman's sons. The translator understood that this is not talking about snakes begetting snakes and then humans stepping on snakes and then snakes biting the humans and the humans crushing the snakes. He understood that this is referring to the spiritual descendants of Satan, sons of the devil, and the spiritual descendants of Eve who would have faith in God. Listen to another translation, another Aramaic translation, Targum Pseudo-Jonathan. And this one was actually written long after Jesus, in the 12th century. And so this shows that this understanding of the spiritual enmity was preserved for centuries in various Jewish writings. The translator in this Aramaic translation wanted to make it clear that not only was this enmity between humans, rather than snakes and humans, but that it also went on or would go on for ages. And so this is what the translation says. I, God, will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between the seed of your sons and the seed of her sons. So the translator goes from one word, seed, to the entire phrase, the seed of your sons, as well as the seed of her sons. In other words, this enmity will exist not only between the serpents and Eve's immediate kids, but it will exist between the kids of their kids for generations to come. The translator understood that this is something that will prevail throughout the ages. And then when we look at all of the scripture, we see that this is exactly how scripture presents this seed and this idea of enmity as wicked seed at enmity with the righteous seed. In Genesis chapter 4, two of Eve's sons, the first two seeds that come after this prophecy, they live out the fulfillment of this enmity. Cain murders Abel. Cain is never actually called the son of the serpent or the seed of Eve. He's simply called a man. In Genesis chapter 4 verse 1, it says, now Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man, namely Cain, with the help of Yahweh. Now, while Cain is not called seed, Abel is referred to as seed, as Eve's seed. At least implicitly, he's referred to as such. After Cain kills Abel, you go to Genesis chapter 4, verse 25, it says, then Adam knew his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has set for me another seed 
in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. Cain kills Abel, Eve's seed, and God replaces this seed, Abel, with Seth. So Satan causes death to enter this world, and Cain is the first human being who actually directly causes death by virtue of committing murder. And because of this, because of what Cain did, John explicitly links Cain with the serpent. And he says in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, he says, For this is the message which we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and who slew his brother. So right after God sets enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, we see this enmity play itself out between Cain, who is of the devil, and Abel, who is of Eve. And this distinction between the two seeds, the righteous and the wicked, continues throughout all of Scripture. Listen to just a couple of passages in the Old Testament that refer to the seed of the wicked. In Psalm 37, verse 28, David says, For Yahweh loves justice and will not forsake his holy ones. They are kept forever. But the seed of the wicked will be cut off. In Isaiah 1, when God is condemning Israel for being a sinful nation, a nation that rejects God, God says in chapter 1, verse 4, Alas, sinful nation, people heavy with iniquity, seed of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have forsaken Yahweh. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel. They have become estranged from him. So just like we saw in the Targum, the true Jewish translation of Genesis 3, the idea of seed as sons, and in this case as wicked sons, appears in the Bible as well. And beyond these two passages in the Old Testament, the scripture carries on with this image of the seed of the wicked being against the seed of the righteous. Now, we can also go to the New Testament. We can see this concept continue into the New Testament times, the times of Jesus. In John chapter 8, an entire discussion takes place between Jesus and the Pharisees about whose seed the Pharisees truly are. In this discussion, Jesus says, that God's word sets people free, but the Pharisees are offended by this, and they say in verse 33, we are Abraham's seed, and we have never yet been enslaved to anyone. Well, later on in verse 37, Jesus responds and says, I know that you are Abraham's seed, yet you are trying to kill me. Jesus is saying here, I know that you belong to the people of Israel. I know that physically you came from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Jesus says that this conversation is greater than the physical. Jesus shifts from the physical lineage of the Pharisees to the fruit in their life, which reveals the spiritual lineage. And this shows whose seed they truly are. And as soon as Jesus says that they want to kill him, Jesus brings into this conversation the image of Cain killing Abel and Satan being the original causer of death. And this raises the question, whose seed are you? The seed of the righteous or the seed of the wicked, the seed of serpent? And then building on this idea of the seed, Jesus says in verse 42, 
if God were your father, to the, to the Pharisees, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God the Father. And then in verse 44, this is where Jesus explicitly links the Pharisees to the devil. And he delivers the final blow of his statement to them. He says, you are of your father the devil and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. Jesus says that you want to murder me because the original murderer from the very beginning of history is your father. You are the seed of his lineage. You hate me because I have proceeded from God the father, but you are an enemy of God and you are of the seed of the serpent. This entire discussion is founded on God's division of the human race into two groups, those who belong to God and those who belong to the devil or the serpent. And this enmity that the Pharisees are depicting towards Jesus is the fulfillment of the enmity that God had established in Genesis 3.15 between the two seeds. Now, it's important for us to recognize that this enmity defines the seed of the serpent. They hate the seed of the woman, and they hate God himself. And this is why we can never join their side. This is why in James 4.4, James uses the terminology from Genesis 3.15, and he says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God. This word enmity is the equivalent of enmity in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the serpent is an enemy of God and hates the things of God. Now, as a counterpart to this, we who are the seed of the woman, the redeemed, we are to have enmity toward the things of the devil. Romans chapter 12, verse 9 says, Let love be without hypocrisy by abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good. And in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9, God the Father says to Jesus, God the Son, he says, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. And so we must hate evil. When we think about enmity in Genesis 3.15, we understand and we acknowledge that enmity is punishment because of sin. But at the same time, Joel Beakey once said that the enmity that God said in 3.15, Genesis 3.15, it also has a benefit. We take it for granted that we have genuine enmity toward Satan, toward the ideology of Satan, toward his system in this world, toward everything that he does through his people. Here's a question. Have you ever thought that the unbelievers are not enemies of Satan? They love the things that the devil is doing in this world. They advocate for those things. They're fighting for those things that he's doing in this world. We hate what the devil is doing in this world. And we look forward to that day when Christ conquers him and when Christ subjects everything under his feet. We believers hate the work of the devil because we are not the seed of the serpent. We are the seed of the woman. We are the redeemed seed. And because of that, we are the righteous seed. 
And this is the second kind of seed that Genesis 3.15 mentions, the righteous seed. This second seed that God identifies is the seed of Eve, the righteous seed that will prove to have faith in God and will worship God. And this is the redeemed seed. So go to Genesis 3.15. Again, let's look at that verse. God is speaking to the serpent and God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. God says that there is the seed of the serpent and that there is the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is the seed that the Bible considers to be redeemed. The seed that is righteous. Here in Genesis 3.15, this is indicated by the sheer fact that the seed of the woman is antithetical to the seed of the serpent. It's at enmity with the seed of the serpent. One seed is the seed of the serpent who is the arch enemy of God. And the other seed is the seed of the woman who is the seed of God, who is the arch enemy of the serpent. And so we see that they are opposites of one another. And one is the seed of the wicked and the other, by virtue of it being opposite, is the seed of the righteous. Now listen to a few other parts of the Bible that recognize and identify the righteous seed. Isaiah 44 says that the righteous seed will belong to God. In verse 3, Isaiah 44, 3, God says, I will pour out my spirit on your seed, Israel's seed. And then in verse 5, God says, this one or this seed will say, I am Yahweh's. And another seed will write on his hand, belonging to Yahweh. In other words, God refers to seed that belongs to Yahweh. Isaiah 6.13 calls the righteous Israelites the holy seed. Jeremiah 2.21 calls the righteous seed a seed of truth. Malachi 2.15 calls the righteous seed godly seed, or literally the seed of God. And listen to the famous and the beloved chapter from Isaiah 53, verse 10, which talks about the death of the Messiah and then the success of the Messiah after his death and resurrection. Isaiah 53.10 says, But Yahweh was pleased to crush him, the Messiah, putting him to grief. If you would place his soul as a guilt offering, he, the Messiah, will see his seed. The Messiah will see his seed. Who is the Messiah's seed? Well, it's those who look like the Messiah. It's those who resemble the Messiah. Those who love and follow the Messiah are the seed of the Messiah. And when we look at this image further in the scripture, scriptures, we see that it continues into the New Testament as well. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells a parable of the wheat and the tares. A man sows seed in his field, but his enemy comes and sows tares in that same field. And so as a result, both the wheat, which the parable calls good seed, and the tares, which the parable implies is bad seed, they began to sprout up at the same time. Then when Jesus explains this parable, he associates the good seed with God and the bad seed with the devil. And then Matthew 13 in verse 37, Jesus says, 
the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. And then in verse 38, Jesus says, as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. Now on the opposite end, Jesus says that the enemy who sowed the tares or the bad seed is the devil. And then Jesus says, the tares are the sons of the evil one. Now we know that throughout the New Testament, the term seed, the idea of seed is used in various ways. But in this parable, this goes directly back to the concept established in Genesis 3.15, where the good seed refers to the sons of God, and the bad seed refers to the sons of Satan. Now, with all of these passages that I just read, grounded in the concept of the seed, which is established in Genesis 3.15, there is no passage that is clearer about the meaning of the seed of the woman than Revelation 12.17. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. In this chapter, Revelation 12, John describes a sign that appears in heaven. A woman with child is about to give birth to a son who is to rule over all the nations. The woman is a symbol of Israel. And John uses language and imagery that goes back to Genesis 37, the moon, the stars, the sun, And he also uses imagery that goes back to Genesis chapter 3. The woman, her seed, and the serpent. And as the woman is about to give birth in this vision, a dragon stands before the woman so that he could kill the child, but God protects the child. And then go down to verse 10. In verse 10, this dragon is explicitly identified as the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. As soon as John refers to the serpent of old, we know that he is thinking of Genesis chapter 3, of the serpent who deceived Eve, just like he is deceiving the entire world. Now go down to verse 13. Verse 13 states that this dragon persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, But God protected the woman, just like he protected the child. And then go to verse 17. Verse 17 is where we see the climax of this passage, at least for our study of the meaning of the seed of the woman. Verse 17 says this. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her seed. And who is the seed of the woman? John continues, and he says that it's those who keep the commandments of God and have the witness of Jesus. The seed of the woman is those who keep the commandments of God and have the witness of Jesus. And in the context of Revelation 12, this refers to Jews and Gentiles who believe. So when John wants to refer to those who are righteous, What does he do here? He uses a concept that was established in Genesis 3.15, and he refers to the seed of the woman. He reaches back to Genesis 3, and he shows that those who keep the commandments of God and of Christ are the seed of the woman. And we can look at this concept a little bit more broadly. 
And we'll see that the scripture makes clear that this redeemed seed is both Jewish and Gentile. In Isaiah chapter 49, verses 5 and 6, Isaiah is prophesying here about the salvific work of the Messiah. And he says that Christ's salvation reaches to the end of the earth. In 49, verses 5 and 6, the Messiah is actually speaking here. And he says, So now says Yahweh who formed me, the Messiah, from the womb to be his servant, to return Jacob back to him, so that Israel might be gathered to him. So the Messiah will definitely save this seed from the nation of Israel who believe in him. And this is the holy seed that Isaiah refers to in Isaiah chapter 6. But in verse 6, as Isaiah continues in verse 6, God says that he has a bigger plan of salvation. God says in verse 6, it is too small a thing that you, the Messiah, should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to cause the preserved ones of Israel to return. I will also give you as a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The salvation of Christ extends both to the Jews and to the Gentiles who follow Christ. The seed of God consists not of one ethnicity or another, but it's of those who submit their lives to God. And this is exactly what Paul says in Romans 4, verse 16. Paul writes, For this reason salvation is by faith, in order that it may be according to grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, namely the Israelites, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, namely the Gentiles. The seed of Eve that God refers to in the very first prophecy, the plan of his redemption in Genesis 3.15, the seed of Eve is that seed that submits to God and to Christ. This is the redeemed seed. This is the righteous seed. But this seed is righteous not on its own merit, but it's righteous only because it's redeemed by the ultimate and the perfect seed, who is the Messiah. And the perfect seed is the final seed that God identifies in his promise in Genesis 3.15. The Messiah, the Redeemer, who redeems the seed of the woman. At the end of Genesis 3.15, God singles out an individual from the seed of the woman And God refers to this seed by the singular pronoun he, and this he is the perfect seed. So one more time, let's look at Genesis 3.15 in its entirety, and let's see what God says here. God is speaking to the serpent, and God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He, the Messiah from the seed of the woman, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now this he, he shall bruise you on the head, as you know, has garnered some debate. Is the he referring to all the believers, or is this he referring specifically to the Messiah? Is it a collective, where it's using a singular form, but it's referring to many people, like the word group, or the word sheep, it's singular in form, but it's Reference is to a number of 
items within that word, within that group? Is it doing that or is it singular and referring to one singular individual? Well, there are a number of reasons why the most straightforward, the strongest, and the best interpretation is that this is referring to an individual, the Messiah. First, the pronoun he, in the sentence, he shall bruise you on the head, is actually singular. So even though the word he theoretically could be used to refer to many, the singular form would naturally... And actually, it would be required to indicate that this is referring to one individual. Unless there are other elements within the verse, within the statement, that show that this is plural. And in this verse, there are no such explicit or clear elements to point or suggest that this is plural. Secondly, the verb he will bruise, the verb bruise for this pronoun he, is also singular in the Hebrew. Thirdly, in the second line, you shall bruise him on the heel. The word him is also singular. And then finally, the structure of this verse shows that this has to be singular and that it has to refer to one individual. There are three levels of enmity in this verse. There is enmity between the singular serpent and then the singular woman, Eve. So there is parallelism. Then there is enmity between the plural seed of the serpent and between the plural seed of Eve. So there is parallelism. Thirdly, there is enmity between the singular serpent again and he. Well, for this to have parallelism, the word he has to be singular, a singular serpent against a singular he. And as a singular he, it would be referring to the seed who conquers the serpent, which would make it the ultimate seed and the one that we would refer to as the Messiah. So the grammar, the syntax, and the structure in this verse indicate that the he is referring to an individual but this individual is also connected to the seed of the woman, the many seed, because he comes out of the seed of the woman, and he's the individual seed who comes out of the many seed. He's singled out, and a spotlight goes on him because of the massive feat that he achieves, which is to defeat the serpent. And this is how the scriptures begin to anticipate his coming of this one seed as the ultimate seed who would come from the seed of Eve through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David, and so on. And as soon as Adam and Eve leave the garden, they're expecting the seed that God promised. Now, as I noted earlier, even though Cain is not called seed, Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 suggests that Eve thought that Cain might have been the seed. She said in Genesis 4.1, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. Well, what does that mean? This means that she was thinking that Yahweh has fulfilled Genesis 3.15. God has provided that seed that he spoke of. But Eve's hopes are immediately crushed because Cain kills Abel. 
This means that Cain is not the seed because he's a murderer. Abel is not the seed because he's dead. So she then views Seth as the replacement seed. And in Genesis 4.25, after Cain kills Abel, Eve gives birth to Seth, and she says, God has set for me another seed in the place of Abel. She names him Seth because God had set for her another seed. There's a deliberate link between the word set and the name Seth. Her anticipation for this seed was so strong that she named him Seth because she believed that God had set another seed for her. She was waiting for God to give her that seed that he had promised. She didn't just come up with this idea of seed on her own. She was depending on God's promise in Genesis 3.15. Her anticipation shows that from the very beginning, she is waiting for that one seed who will crush the serpent's head. And then this anticipation for the seed continues through the scriptures as God narrows the seed line until the ultimate seed, the Messiah Jesus, arrives. When God chooses Abraham in Genesis 12, God promises him an entire nation of seed, an entire nation of descendants. But later, as God continues to give promises to Abraham, God specifies that there will be a specific lineage that will carry forward God's promise. And that through this lineage, an individual seed will conquer all the enemies of Israel and of God. In Genesis chapter 21, verses 12 and 13, God says that this promise, this seed will come through Isaac, not Ishmael. In Genesis 22, 17 and 18, God first promises that the seed of Abraham will be numerous. But then God specifies that there will be an individual seed who will conquer his enemies. In Genesis 22, 17 and 18, this is what we read. God says, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And this refers to a plurality of descendants. Many people as the stars of the heavens, as the sand on the seashore. But then God continues and he says, and your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And now there is a shift to the singular, his enemies. Then God continues and says, in your seed, and this is in the context of the singular again, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have listened to my voice. So you can see how God speaks of seed in the plural sense, but how God also speaks of the seed in the singular sense as seed that belongs to the plural, but as one who comes out of the plural seed and who comes out as an individual. Now you might ask, but can't the phrase his enemies be their enemies? Couldn't it be plural? Well, theoretically, yes. Hebrew would allow for that. But grammatically and syntactically, in this context, the best translation is singular because of the singular he, which appears in Hebrew, paired with the word zera, seed, and because of the singular, word, singular verb possess in the Hebrew. So the grammar and the syntax indicate that this should be singular. And so just as in Genesis 3.15, you have the idea of one seed 
coming out of the many. We can go further in Scripture. We can look at the promises that God gives to David, and we see that this seed will come from the line of David. In 2 Samuel 7, God promises to David a seed, and in the immediate sense, this is fulfilled in Solomon, even though Solomon is sinful. But beyond Solomon, it's fulfilled in a line of kings with the ultimate and sinless king ruling over a throne that is established forever. And then in 1 Chronicles 17, the author refers to this promise and indicates that the ultimate uh, seed will be sinless. 1 Chronicles 17.11 removes the statement that this seed will commit iniquity. And the reason that Chronicles bring out, brings out this sinlessness of this seed is because only a sinless king can reign on a throne forever. But here also, just as in Genesis 3.15, the individual and the ultimate seed would come from the many. And just as the Old Testament had this expectation, so also the New Testament develops this, uh, this theme that the seed is the Messiah, and that he comes from Eve and Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, and David. In Acts 13.23 Luke writes that from the seed of this man, David, according to the promise, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. In Romans chapter 1, verse 3, Paul writes that Jesus was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. The New Testament consistently demonstrates that Jesus is the promised seed from the people of Israel who is to come and who is to be the Messiah and Savior. But while various New Testament passages generally point in this direction, Galatians 3.16 makes this explicit. In Galatians 3, Paul is talking about the promise God made to Abraham about giving him a seed. And Paul asks this question. Is this talking about many seed or is this talking about one seed? Should the people of Israel expect an individual seed, or will there be only a plurality of seed without an individual and ultimate seed? And as Paul raises this question, here's what he says in Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. Paul is referring to a number of Old Testament passages here. Genesis 12, 7, Genesis 17, 7, among others, Genesis 22, 17, and 18, which we just read. And this point, Paul's point, is that there is an ultimate seed who fulfills all of God's promises. And Genesis 22 that we just looked at is actually a prime passage where Paul's argument climaxes, it reaches its climactic point. In Genesis 22, God gives a promise of seed to Abraham right after Abraham is willing to sacrifice Isaac, and he demonstrates his faith in God in that way. And God says to Abraham in Genesis 22, 17, 8, 17 and 18 once again, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And as I noted earlier, here the word has a plural sense because it's being compared to the stars of the heavens and the sand on the seashore. But then God continues in the second part of verse 17. 
And he says, and your seed shall possess, singular, the gate of his, singular, enemies. Verse 18, in your seed, in the context of the singular, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have listened to my voice. So in these references to seed, God shifts from the plural to the singular. God says, your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. God makes a shift from talking about the plurality of the Israelites, like the stars of the heavens, to a singular seed who comes out of the plural seed of Israel and who conquers his enemies. Paul picks up on this grammatical nuance and makes the exclamation that this is referring to and this is fulfilled in Christ. He says in Galatians 3.16, he does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed that is Christ. Now, while Paul is referring to Genesis 22, Genesis 12, 17, and a few other passages from Genesis, the language, the grammar, the theology of these passages is dependent entirely on Genesis 3.15. What God promises to Abraham in Genesis 22 is what God promised to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. A single seed who comes out of the plurality of seed and who achieves triumph. In Genesis 22, This individual, this seed, comes from the seed of the nation of Israel, but fundamentally, he comes from the seed of the woman of Eve, as Genesis 3.15 indicates. Well, let me conclude with this. This principle that the one ultimate seed comes out of the many is invaluable because this means that there is unity between the one and the many. Because of this unity, when the individual seed crushes the head of the serpent, the entire plurality of seed benefits. Because the individual seed wins, the entire plurality of seed wins. But there's even more significance to this victory. When the seed, who is Christ, crushes the serpent under his feet, he crushes the serpent under our feet, the seed who are the believers. And this is what Paul says in Romans 16.20. Speaking to the believers, Paul says, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your, the believers, feet. So referring to Genesis 3.15, Paul says that when Christ conquers Satan, the believers will conquer Satan because Christ is our head and Christ is our representative. That is why Paul concludes in verse 20 with this statement, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you because he achieves all of this. The one seed represents all the seed who are in him. So when does Christ fulfill this? When does Christ crush the head of the serpent? Well, Christ inaugurated this work in his suffering on the cross at his first coming, and he will complete this work in his triumph at his second coming. Colossians 2, 14 and 15 says that on the cross, he triumphed over the rulers and authorities, which is Satan and his hosts. 1 Peter 3, 19 says that on the cross, Christ declared victory over death. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 25 and 26 
says that in the future, Christ will put all his enemies under his feet, including death, which is a reference to Genesis 3. And finally, in Revelation 20.10, we see that this is fulfilled when the devil is cast into the lake of fire, where he will be forever and ever. So to finish where we started, when we study the concept of the remnant, we see that the remnant is that part of humanity that is redeemed by God. And we also see that this was the very plan of God in the very first prophecy in Genesis 3.15. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that your word is so exciting. Lord God, that it results in us just saying amen and praise God. Lord God, I pray that your word would stay with us and that it would cause us to worship you, that it would cause us to break out in exaltation. Lord God, may it cause us to cling to you, to look forward to you. Lord God, not to cling to this world, but to look forward to that time when you put all of this world, all of the sin, Satan and his hosts under the feet of Christ and under the feet of the church. Lord God, may we look forward to that day. Lord God, while we do, may we worship you. I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.